kind of overnight immediately. I think I went home from work that day and got signed up on Upwork. And I think within three days I had my first podcast editing client. Hey, what's up, you guys? My name is Mikko Kraszowski, and welcome to episode 85 of That Remote Life podcast, where we hear from location-independent entrepreneurs and professionals so you can learn to quit the cubicle and live life on your terms. Today on the podcast, I am joined by my good friend, Jeremy Enns, the CEO and storyteller-in-chief of Counterweight Creative, a podcast production and marketing agency helping health and wellness experts leverage podcasting to become the go-to authorities in their space. Jeremy and I have known each other for several years, and I have always thought of Jeremy as the perfect image of what we think of as a digital nomad entrepreneur. He is constantly slow traveling around the world with his girlfriend, Kelly, all while running his podcasting agency. During this interview, Jeremy and I discussed a plethora of different topics from how he got started with podcast editing and how to create a great profile on Upwork to how to spend your time while traveling as an entrepreneur and scaling a remote company. So I think you guys are really going to enjoy this episode. Now, before we jump into the episode, please head over to Apple Podcasts or your favorite equivalent and leave us an honest review. If you're enjoying this podcast, this is the number one way to support us. Reviews are still a key statistic that Apple looks at in order to determine how to rank a podcast. So your review will directly help us climb the rank boards and attract new listeners. So I wanna thank you in advance for leaving a review if you choose to do so. If you want to check out the full show notes and list of resources mentioned on this episode, you can do so over at thatremotelife.com forward slash episode 85. That's episode all spelled out, followed by the number 85. All right, you guys, without further ado, let's dive into this wide-ranging conversation with Jeremy Enns from Counterweight Creative. All right, Jeremy, welcome to the show, man. How you doing? I'm good. Thanks so much for having me on, Miko. Yeah, I'm a little, uh, I was about to hit record here and I, I felt the jitters because you're a podcast expert and I'm like, oh, geez, we're about to roll into this. You know, I got nervous. But uh, yeah, we've known each other for quite a while now. So I know that we met through Location Indie um, and then we were in a mastermind together. But how did you end up in Location Indie to begin with? So yeah, I joined Location Indie in... I want to say that would have been January 2016, which was, I think, within the first year. I think it was before they ever opened it to the public. And you still had to like apply at that point. And uh, Jason and Travis, the two founders of it, one of them would reach out to you. So I remember I applied sometime probably in January and Jason reached out. And I think we might have actually got on a call and he had a bunch of follow-up questions about you know what I was doing, what my goals were, all these types of things. And at the time, I was working as a landscaper. I'd gone to audio school to become a, a sound engineer and record producer and had interned in a studio for about a year, just a couple of days a week after I finished school and kind of pretty quickly realized that I wasn't willing to make the sacrifice that would be necessary to make a, a living as a working sound engineer or producer, which 
everybody I knew who like the interns who were moving up the ranks at the studio were like there almost literally 24 seven. Like there was at least one guy who was living in his car and you like show up there if you're an intern, like you don't get paid for any of this either, which I think is probably technically illegal, but it's kind of like the way the industry still works where you show up at like 8 a.m. before the sessions start and kind of, you know, do any kind of studio prep work. And then a lot of times sessions will run to like four in the morning. And so you're just like there all the time. And so I did that one or two days a week, which was exhausting. And I mean, I learned a lot and met some cool people, but there was just no way, like I had to work full time to support myself. And just like physically, I think I would have died doing that like every day of the week that some people were doing. So I was just like, okay, I don't think that this is is really for me, or at least, you know, I'm going to take a break and maybe I'll try and do some freelance work, some production kind of stuff. And I did do a few albums that way. Uh, and those were a lot of fun. And again, I kind of learned a lot more doing those, but I was like, okay, I don't know if I like really am cut out for this or, or if I, I love it as much as I thought I did that I was you know kind of willing to make that sacrifice and put those hours in. So I was working landscaping. I'd taken a year off to travel, just saved up and, and taken off. I, I think it was actually nine months, something like that, a little less than a year. And after coming back from that trip, I was like, okay, how can I do more of this? And it was around then the fall of 2015 that I discovered podcasts and both uh, Jason and Travis, uh, their individual shows, uh, Extra Pack of Peanuts and Zero to Travel were two of the original podcasts that I started listening to at that time, being a travel lover. And pretty soon after that, they launched their Location Indie podcast. So I started listening to that, found out about the community, and uh, then applied to join there. So that's kind of the, the long story to how I ended up in Location Indie. And uh, and I guess this was probably maybe two years later, got connected with you at some point. Mm -hmm. So you joined before you ever started like you're, cause currently you run a podcast editing business called counterweight creative. So you joined before you ever even like started that. Yeah. So at the time I was, uh, when I started discovered podcast, I, I didn't even really know that location independence, digital nomads, that any of this really existed on the year prior to that, that I'd been traveling. I'd met a few people who were, I guess I would call them expats. They were older, like in the forties, fifties. Uh, I remember one guy distinctly, well, there was, there was one who was like a TV producer and I was like, okay, well, I'm not going to do that. And the other guy like owned a factory or something and made physical products. And I was like, okay, uh, these are I'm not going to do either of these things. And I had never really met anyone. I think I'd heard about, you know, web developers and things like that and coders that like that was remote work, but I didn't know there was anybody out there who did anything besides like coding that could travel. And so that whole world was kind of like, just this dark spot on the map for me until I discovered podcasts. And I remember going onto iTunes and just searching up. I didn't even know what to search for. I was like, mm, like creative business or something like that, or small business or, and all of a sudden, like there's of course dozens of shows and a lot of them are online related. And I was like, Oh, this is a thing. And so I, then I discovered that that kind of whole world was opened up to me and I was really into photography at the time. So I actually started a photography blog and was kind of had the idea of, of building that up, writing articles, and then at some point offering courses, um, which I, I did a lot of writing for that. I never got to the point where I had any products. I actually, I did make a calendar the one year that uh, would have been like the fall of, of 2015. So it been a 2016 calendar. I think I recovered my costs on the printing of the calendars and uh, I did not pre-sell it, which I would do now. What kind of and calendar I, was it? Like a, like a, like a, I, I immediately think when somebody you know, like, what is it like bikini calendar? Like, what was it? Oh, yeah, it was me in, in various bikinis <laughs> posing in different places around the world. In banana hammocks. <laughs> <laughs> it was uh, like landscape photography is what I was really into. So uh, it was 
basically travel photos from everywhere I'd been over that, that previous kind of year. And yeah, I, I sold maybe 30 of them and it was all family and friends. I remember there was one order that came in that was a name I didn't recognize. And I was like so elated. And then I realized that it was actually, my mom told me that it was my cousin's uh, fiance at the time. So she had a different last name. I didn't even know her last name. And uh, I was like, oh, okay. So it was all people <laughs> I knew, which I mean, I think that's the norm for anybody's first product. And I recoup my costs. And I think I still have like a hundred calendars sitting somewhere in a box. Uh, <laughs> 2016 so, yeah. calendars. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe one day there'll be a collector's item. Who knows? So how, I mean, cause for me, like the sort of Pandora's box was like, I heard the term digital nomad and I was like, oh, this sounds interesting. And I like typed into Google and then like, you know, everything popped up and I found the four work week and et cetera, et cetera. Mm. So you found Jason and Travis's podcast and I'm, I'm assuming you heard kind of about this whole, like, you know, being able to travel and work remotely. What was your next step from there? Cause I didn't know, I for whatever reason, I'd assumed that you had been running your business for a long time before that and then joined the community. So what was, you know, like your first steps into starting what is now kind of right creative? Yeah. So I was working on this uh, photography blog and I remember when I joined and I said, you know, I have this background in audio engineering and, and photography and all these skills and everybody was like, on their team, they were like, oh, you have so many skills that'll make it a great transition to be uh, location independent. And I was like, really? Like, I don't think so. I don't have any skills like, yeah, the photography thing that could work out, but that's just going to take a long time to build up an audience, all these things. And specifically when I had mentioned like audio editing and stuff, people had said like, oh, that's like a really great skill to have. And I was like, my whole idea of sound engineering and like those skills was very much rooted in a physical studio, whether that's like working at a big studio uh, or, you know, just having my own studio, whether even if that's a home studio, like there's all the gear, there's just all the stuff that is clearly not location independent. And so I never saw any connection between those two mm. things. And so I was working at this photography thing for a long time. It's probably total like nine months. And at some point I kind of started work on that photography blog, October, 2015, I think in April, 2016. So that's probably around six months later, I was actually listening to one of, it was either location indie or zero to travel. And Jason made some comment about his podcast editor, just an offhand comment on the show. And for some, like, I had thought about this before. I thought like, oh, well, like, yeah, I have the skills to edit podcasts, but in my mind, that was always like something you did on like Fiverr Upwork for like $5 mm -hmm. an hour. And that right. it was, you couldn't make enough money to, for it to actually be worth it. And I also had this kind of like elitist mentality of like, well, that's kind of like a sellout, like sound engineer. Like I wouldn't actually do that. That's like, you know, bailing out of it kind of and like what would everyone say that I went to school with if I was like you know working for ten dollars an hour uh, editing podcasts or something like it's not serious sound engineering work because you as a sound engineer kind of like the the thing is like music right it's like you want to be editing and okay for me it was music I mean and I do know people who work in tv and film and I, I think the thing is like that community in particular, like there are, there are a lot of great people in it, but it can also get super technical and, and pretty elitist as well, where everybody has opinions on like everything, like a lot of technical fields. And so I think that I felt some pressure there that people would, would judge me for that. And so I had thought about it, the thought had crossed my mind. And then I just been like, well, yeah, I'm not going to do that. Like I have too much pride for that. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, when I heard Jason make this comment, I, things became very clear for me that the point of 
growing the photography blog. For me, the, the end goal was always travel. It wasn't like, I love photography. I, I still do. I, I still do it as a hobby. Um, but it wasn't necessarily that I loved the idea of running a photography business. And so it, for me, it was always about the travel. And I realized like, oh, well, well, like if I'm doing it for the travel, so what if I like sell out and, you know, edit podcasts for cheap and like don't do justice to all this knowledge I have as a sound engineer and, you know, being able to run a big studio and, and just working on these like little two tracks of audio. Um, like who cares? I'll be able to travel. That's my goal, isn't it? And I was like, oh, okay, this makes a lot of sense. Like I should just do that. And kind of overnight immediately, I think I went home from work that day and got signed up on Upwork. And I think within three days I had my first podcast editing client and it was for like $10 an hour or I don't know if it was, it was probably like $25 an episode for like a 45 mm -hmm. minute show, which probably was, yeah, $10 an hour or maybe even less. And I was just kind of like, okay, well I have a day job. I don't need this money. And so every new client that I got, I just raised my rate like $5 an hour. And cause, cause I could kind of be picky about that. And I had mostly good clients. I don't like some people have Upwork horror stories about getting ripped off and whatever. I didn't have anything that was really, you know, th that I would complain about. And I actually had a lot of success on Upwork. And one of my current clients actually came from there. He was like my third or fourth client or something like that. And, and now he works directly with me. But um, one of the things I realized pretty early on there when it comes to travel and as well as like leveraging platforms like that, we were talking about this a little bit before uh, hitting record is that like service-based businesses I think are the way to go for anybody who's looking to create some kind of remote work for themselves. Uh, I kind of, you know, a lot of people start on the, the blog side of things of like building a digital product. And we all hear about like, yeah, you can make a lot more money if you do it that way. But I think especially for anyone starting out, a lot of people don't have the knowledge to actually make a good digital product. And so like now it's taken four years where, where I finally launched the first uh, course. And now I'm like really excited about the course because I know it's better than anything that's out there on the topic right now. But I couldn't have launched anything near this quality um, with this much information four years ago. And so I think like starting out with service and like actually, you know, getting good at the thing that you do and then branching out into the digital product side of things later um, is, is the way that I would recommend. And then when it comes to Upwork, Upwork can very quickly become a race to the bottom. Mm -hmm. So you need to like find a way to differentiate yourself other than just price. And so for me, I had like a zany, wacky cover letter that was like very heavy on personality. And I also charged more than a lot of people, not like a crazy amount, but like, I think I was at like $40 an hour, whereas most people were at like 15 or 20 or 25. And right. so I think almost part of the higher pricing and the, the personality filled like letters that I wrote people or the pitches, it was like, okay, this one, this person isn't just like trying to conform to this, like corporate speak type pitch where everybody you get like a hundred responses to an Upwork uh, job posting that all sound the same. And so if you can like stand out in some way like that, then I think that that does a much better job of people like, what is this? And then they like actually read through, they see your price. They're like, okay, well this person must know what they're doing. There's a lot of personality here. Like it seems like someone I'd actually like working with rather than everyone else who you like can't tell anything about them. So I think that's why I had better results than, than average maybe uh, on Upwork. And that's what I always tell people now. Yeah. I think you almost go through like when you're first getting started, you almost go through these like stages of like, I think what you first tend to hear about are these like really sexy businesses where it's like passive income and yeah. you, know, you run a blog or you sell, you know, and you, you like sit on the beach and you, you know, the four hour work, we kind of like dream, yeah. but then that is, I mean, it's very much possible, but it takes 
a certain skill level and experience to be able to do that the right way. And it usually also mm -hmm. takes some type of like audience that you're probably not going to have when you get started. And so I do see that with a lot of people where they like, you know, especially people who are just getting started, who like their plan is like, I'm going to start a blog and I'm going to make money out of it. And then they tend to like do that for a year and a half, realize kind of what it takes to do that. And then they kind of figure out, okay, let me go back to the skills that I have from my previous job or whatever it is. And let me try to sell that. I think that might be shifting a little bit now because there's so many podcasts and so much information out there. Uh, but I always say is like, whatever you're getting paid to do now at your job, figure out how to do that remotely because uh, you're already being paid to do it. So clearly somebody values your skill in that you have experience. So mm -hmm. all it takes is to just, you know, like figure out how to like shift out of being paid for that as an employee to doing it remotely. Um, but yeah, I mean, I did the same thing. I was like, yeah, I'm going to be a blogger or whatever, you know, like we all did the same thing. Um, yeah. So it's interesting that when you started on Upwork, are you still doing, because I know that Upwork now offers like Upwork for agencies or something like that. Do you, are you still using that at all as one of your acquisition channels or are you just fully, um, I don't know, I'm assuming referrals is probably your biggest acquisition channel outside of that? Yeah, referrals definitely is, is really in the, pretty much since the start, like at the very start, the first six months to a year, really only the first six months, I would say it was outreach, Upwork. I did wrote out like probably 200 cold emails, I think. And I just put together this list uh, going through iTunes and like looking at podcasts. I had these like different ways of filtering, like what I thought someone, where someone might be at the level where they would be looking to outsource their production, mm -hmm. but not so big that they would certainly have someone already. And I got, I think I sent out, it, it was over 200 emails and I got one client out of it. And they were like, they were a big show, but they were a difficult client because they didn't want to pay for stuff. Like they were super cheap and they were a podcast like about money and finance. So I think they were very numbers focused. Mm -hmm. And so that one, like, I'm, I'm glad I got that client because they were one. I mean, I, I learned so much from about working with clients from them, but it was definitely frustrating at a time. And they had a super high uh, expectation of quality, which was like, I would never provide that level of quality now. I mean, Obviously now over four years, we've raised our prices a lot from back then, one of my first clients, but just thinking about how big that disconnect was, it is just like between what they were paying you and what you had to deliver as quality. Though. Yeah. Yep. And so that one, I definitely learned a lot from them. They were the one client I got from cold outreach. So, I mean, it's, it's possible to do it that way, but I, it was probably not worth all that time that I put into that. Um, looking back, I think I would have mind my existing network more. And I think that's a really uncomfortable thing for people to like actually reach out to people, you know, and kind of put yourself in the line and say like, Hey, you know, I'm starting this thing. Do you know anyone who might be interested in? And I don't know why that feels so uncomfortable, but it like it does. <laughs> and I, I never brought myself to do that. I think at the time I probably didn't have the network of people who were working online already. Like now I think it'd be much, much easier. Um, but back then, definitely not. So yeah, it, it was Upwork at the start, um, responding to pitches, reaching out to people, and then really grew from there um, all through referrals. And so um, now I, I've seen that Upwork agency feature. I haven't used it at all. I would rather stay away from Upwork in terms of like, you know, the cut that they take. So, and things are going like well enough that I don't put too much time into that. For a while, I actually did. I, I looked at like what 
the kind of field of podcast producers looked like. And I just made sure I priced myself at the very top end, like higher than literally anyone else on Upwork. And I just didn't do anything else other than that. And I actually got a decent amount of people who came to me and did get some work out of it. And I think there was, I was like, okay, the people who are going to pay our rates, like they're looking, I just want to make sure that there's some kind of like signifier here that they're not looking for a $10 an hour editor. And so if I price myself at like $450 an hour, that like, they're like, okay, this is someone who's like serious. And you know, of course my description had everything about the agency and all this stuff. So it was like, okay, this is a legitimate business. And he has worked with a lot of people and they knew what they were kind of getting into before they sent the message that like, it's not going to be cheap. So um, that, that worked for a while. I, I now, it gets to the point where I don't log into Upwork enough that I think my, I don't come up in searches very much anymore. And mm-hmm. once a month they're like, Hey, are you still there? Like you need to log in to like refresh your, for your profile to appear again. So it's, it's not a big thing anymore, but uh, it, it did get me some juice for a while. For me, the, uh, the interesting thing with podcasting and in terms of like running a podcast editing business, which I think is such a cool business model. Um, I remember the first person that I heard that does that, <clears throat> I forget his name, but he did the, um, the Tim Ferriss show. Like he was the one that yeah. put together the, uh, very beginning intro. And then I also think that he worked with, um, the school of greatness or something like that. And I was like, that is so hmm. cool. Like you're doing like, you know, editing these really popular podcasts and whatnot. Um, but my thing with it was that a majority of podcasts don't make money. Right. And mm-hmm. so yeah. Uh, likely if those people are even going to be paying for editing, they're not going to be paying much for editing. And then the way that I at least thought about it, and I'm curious kind of get your feedback on how you were able to insert yourself with like people who were willing to pay you that is that by the time that those podcasts do start ending, like they do start making enough money to kind of like pay decent rates. I feel like there's like a very small amount of time in which you can like kind of strike the iron while it's hot and like get the clients because otherwise mm-hmm. like, they're going to get someone else to do it. So how did you figure out at what point to reach out to clients? And if the podcast was big enough for you to even approach them, like how did that work? Yeah. So at the start I was just, like I said, when I was doing the outreach, it was all going through iTunes and I was looking for shows probably that I think had maybe a minimum of 50 episodes or something like that. Or mm-hmm. it was like a substantial amount of episodes where they were doing it for a while And I would also look at, I think, the number of reviews. And so I think if they had like a thousand reviews, I'm like, okay, they're a pretty big show and, you know, they they probably have someone on board already. And so I would kind of filter by that between a certain number of episodes. I also thought if they had like over 200 episodes, they probably already got someone. And so I think it was like, you know, 50 to 150 episodes, even that's a lot, maybe it was 50 to 100 and like a certain amount of reviews where I was like, okay, they're, they're starting out but it seems like they're gaining some traction, like things are moving, they have some momentum, so they might be a good fit. Um, And I would rather err on being too early than too late. So, you know, that even if we can start a conversation now, six months from now, they're actually looking to outsource, you know, maybe I'll I'll get in there and and they'll remember me. That never actually ended up happening. Uh, It was just the one client who was like immediately kind of looking to switch. They, They already had an editor actually, and they were already a big show, but they weren't quite happy with, with their existing editor or something like that. Mm -hmm. So um, that's the one I did get, uh, going forward, then it it was really all referrals. And so I think the thing there was everybody who was referred to me by my existing clients, most of them were starting new shows. Uh, and there were a few who like had an existing show and it clearly like the level of production was lower. They were probably, you know, paying $30 an episode for someone to edit their show and didn't have 
you know, then they, they had to hire someone else who was doing show notes and someone else to create the graphics and all these things where I was now building out this. At the time, it was still just me, but it was kind of the beginnings of an agency where I was doing all these different services and then started bringing in contractors to help that stuff with that stuff. But um, I, I would say like with the, the key to, to making that work, the referrals work, is that you need to have a network that is... I suppose has the mindset that uh, of being willing to spend money. And so most of being in the health and wellness space, like that's was unintentional uh, at the start. And really it was through one person that I met at a conference who uh, he was the operations person for his wife's company, who was a doctor. And she had a large kind of like online side of things as well as worked one-on-one with people. And so they made a referral to a close friend of theirs who had the same setup. Husband was the operations person, wife was the doctor and the face of the brand. And then between the two of them, they just kept referring me to all these people who then kept referring me to other people. So it's really, we grew that way. And I think, you know, being a doctor, that's a a fairly high paying profession. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that that's, you can get into, it's hard to like, think about this as someone who's maybe just starting out. Whereas you think of like, well, a doctor, yeah, they've got tons of money, but usually they also have a fancy house and car and they don't always have that much disposable income. I found too, that there are some doctors who I look at them and I look at their business. I'm like, Oh, you must be raking it in, but they have very little like cash flow um, or available cash flow to use on, on, on podcast production services or things like that. So it can, it can be difficult sometimes to still like, even if you are in like a high paying profession, that is your kind of niche. Uh, it can still be difficult to like get people to to spend money. Um, but I think that the network that I got tapped into, they were very online savvy and they were also, I, I don't know if I would say early adopters because podcasting was already getting big at the time, but a lot of them were like recognized the value of podcasting. And so they were like, okay, well, I know this probably won't pay off for a year, but I need to invest in this because I need a year from now, I want to have a solid podcast that is going to be working for my business. And so I think like getting, getting into a network and doing whatever you can to like get to know more people who, you know, have that mindset of like, sometimes you do need to spend money to make money. And that the other thing is like understanding that some things like podcasting or blogging or or any content creation, like that's a long game. Like you are not going to just start creating any kind of content in three months from now be making like six figures off of, you know, this audience that you've built up over that time. Like, especially now when there is more content, like you were mentioning before, like I I always tell people like you can podcast for one year and it probably won't feel like it was worth it. But if you stick with it for three years, it might entirely change your life and your business. Right. So it's like that kind of compounding returns of like putting in the effort over time. And eventually the snowball kind of gets bigger and bigger and bigger and starts rolling on its own. What do you think about, um, I had a conversation with someone recently who was thinking about um, becoming like a podcast editor or offering like podcasting services. And one of the things that I have found interesting as a concept is like offering to create and like MC a podcast for companies. So like, mm-hmm. you know, they have money, right? Because they're a business, they have like an advertising or marketing budget. And what you do is essentially say like, hey, I'm going to edit and produce this podcast. And I'm also going to be the co-host with like the CEO, for example. So they don't even have to worry about like kind of guide them through it. Have you ever heard of that before? Or is that something that like you would, you know, suggest for people to do as a differentiator if that's an industry that they want to go into? Yeah, I have heard of a few people doing this. I actually had a sales call with someone three weeks ago or something like that, who that's something he was looking for. And it was pretty clear, like, I liked the idea that he was thinking of. It was pretty clear that we were not the right fit because he was looking for a lot more hands-on 
the I think the challenge with that kind of stuff it's almost it's almost easier if you are like an individual at that point to some extent because like we have all these systems and, and processes set up that are just not catered to that type of show so like I don't have you know, I'm I don't have time to host it I don't have anyone on my team who would be like a host of a show um, what I've seen a lot of times companies in that situation do is or and, and production companies who uh, are working on these types of branded podcasts is they'll help with the uh, sourcing of the the talent or the host. And so it might not be someone from their team who is the host, but it's a lot of times when it works best is you need like a subject matter expert who uh, I think I've seen this with, if you look at um, Pacific content, they're a podcast branded podcast company um, out of Vancouver, which is where I'm from as well. And they do entirely this and so on their blog sometimes they'll they'll talk about these types of things where like they hired a certain person to host a show um like i think the i can't remember who it is i think it's it might be either like chip or dan heath or something like that there's some like business author who hosts a show for some bank in the u.s that they help produce and it's because mm. this person like has you know written many books on very similar topics and so the bank doesn't need to provide anyone who's like media savvy and knows this. So they get this author in who also brings his own audience and also has all these years. So he knows like the right questions to ask yeah. guests and how to structure the content and those types of things. So I think that that's when I've seen it work really well. And I think like big companies would, would definitely go that way, but smaller companies, I think there is opportunity for that. And so for somebody to, you know, say be a freelancer and, or have a small production company or something like that and go pitch that to companies, I would just say like you, it would be a prerequisite that you knew their content and like their audience. And it would be even better if you already had your own audience that was crossed over with that, that would make the, the pitch even more compelling. Um, but I would say, yeah, as a minimum, like understand what they're trying to achieve, who they're speaking to, what their topics are, because that's going to be really important in like actually creating shows that are yeah. relevant to the, like audience. have some industry knowledge so that you know what you're doing and what you're talking about. So, you know, you, you get started with this podcasting company, um, you know, at the time you're doing it yourself, maybe you're bringing on a few people and I want to talk about kind of the shift of going from yourself to bringing people on, uh, later, but what was, uh, what was the experience like of actually hitting the road as a digital nomad? Like, what was that life like? Like, was it everything that you expected it to be or, or it didn't match up? Like, what was that like? It, it so the first time I went traveling, like for the year, I feel like it took me two months or something like that before I, it actually hit me. I was like, Oh, on this trip now, this is pretty cool. And so I feel like there's always this like super long lag with me where I don't get super excited about it. And I feel like it's almost a kind of like hedging my bets. Like, well, if it doesn't live up to expectations, I'm not going to let myself get like super excited leading up to it and just being like giddy about it. And so often there's this long lag. And so I, I feel like that was kind of when I left, I went traveling. It was pretty just like, I was excited for it for sure. But the, the first thing I did was I went, actually I had three house sets lined up in the UK over four, four months or so. And so it was like traveling, I was in a new place and I probably wouldn't have picked the UK except that it was the easiest place to get multiple house sets all at the same time. The website I used was, was based there. And so there's the most users there. And so I went to the UK and I was like, well, you know, probably I wasn't actually imagining going to the UK. It felt too much like Canada. Like it, I, I wasn't, that excited. I was excited to go to a new place, but I was like, well, it's not the exotic experience that I really imagined. Um, which is funny because now I, I absolutely love the UK and we'll go back there all the time. 
But I was in these house sits looking after people's pets while they were away on vacations. And so I had a free place to stay, which was great. Uh, I actually got my flights with points. So that was great. And so I had kind of all these uh, easy, easy access points to traveling. And I kind of had saved up enough money that I was like, okay, after these four months, even if I lose all my clients today, like I'll still be able to like eke it out and come back home and get a job. And so that was kind of the, the experience leaving for me. And I was kind of like, it felt, it felt kind of like an experiment. Like I wasn't sure what was going to happen. I didn't know if it was going to last long term. So it was like, kind of okay, I got to be careful. I can't spend a ton of money. And obviously the UK is an expensive place to, to travel. So it was great that I, I didn't have those living expenses or the, the lodging at, at least. And I, I think like, yeah, I, I, I didn't get too excited and it, it really took a long time to, to settle in. And at the start, I, I would say, I, I mean, it's, it's insane looking back now at, at how much I work and how busy life feels looking back then and being like, how did I, like, what did I do? Yes. I have the same I, feeling. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had probably, I would say two solid days of work a week, maybe two and a half. And a lot of that was spread out over the week because I wouldn't get, you know, things in from different clients, but that was kind of like the amount of work I had. And so I had a lot of free time, but I also can't like think back and be like, I wasn't out sightseeing every single day. Like, what was I doing all that time? <laughs> I know exactly <laughs> what you mean. I did the same thing when I left. I was like, I look back and I feel like I was always working. And now I look at it and I'm like, what was I like? I didn't have that much work. Like, what was I doing with all my time? Mm -hmm. I, yeah, I look back and I assume I was always working. And then I think, yeah. wait, no, I remember I didn't have that much. So I don't know. I, um, it was a great, and so the first four months was house sitting. And so there wasn't a lot of like stuff to do. One, one of those months, actually, one of my best friends from Canada came out and he stayed with me. And so then we had like two of us, we played so much Wii Golf and uh, we had this insane competition where we had all these different things. Like each match was worth like a one beer wager. And then we had also like a hole in one was also worth one beer. And then we had all these other things that was like worth, worth beers. And at the end, we played so many rounds of Wii Golf that there was probably cumul cumulatively like 50, 50 beers or even more like 75 beers on the line that had been wagered. And by the end, he owed me one beer. Like it was so close. And I built up this huge lead where he owed me like 15 and then he like, cut the streak and like even it out so we, that's what I remember from the one place like that's all we did was like play Wii Golf and kind of like explore the the village that we were staying in a little bit but there wasn't a ton to see there uh, and then after that the next four months that first kind of trip I went on was much more like travel travel and so uh, that friend and another friend we went to Morocco I walked uh, 10 days of the Camino de Santiago in Portugal and Spain and then spent time and did a road trip in Scotland, spent time in France, um, elsewhere in Spain as well. And so that was like very much travel focused and that got really exhausting. I think over that four months, I think the longest I was in any one place was like four days maybe. Mm -hmm. And like looking back on that too, I'm like how, I know I didn't have that much work, but like it was exhausting at the time and I can't even imagine it now. So I think, I feel like that first trip, I had the two extremes of like being in one place for a long amount of time with not all that much to do and not that much work. And then also like still not having that much work, but just being on the move so much. And that was pretty stressful. Like I remember just being out doing things, you know, with friends, whatever, traveling, being on a train and like worrying about like, oh, I wonder if a client's like emailing me right now and I don't have access to, to Wi-Fi or anything like that. And so that was that was like a fun first trip and it kind of like showed me both the sides of this this kind of uh, equation of how it could could play out and i was like okay 
uh, I'm gonna kind of go aim for somewhere in between here. Um, and the other thing that, that happened kind of after I came back from that first trip, it was about yeah, eight or nine months total, came back home and I think I lost two clients over that next summer. So it was like coming up on the one year mark, I had done like no work marketing or doing anything and lost a couple of clients and then I was just like freaked out and I was like, oh boy, like if I don't do anything, if I don't get any more clients, like this could all go away really fast. And so that was the point where I still didn't have that many clients, but I was like, okay, I actually need to get focused on working on the business and, you know, starting to write blog posts, like do some kind of marketing, something that's going to help people find me. I started a Facebook group then and just started like kind of building up some presence that would hopefully, you know, give me a foundation for people to kind of come back to and get to know me and, and hopefully work with me in the future. Do you remember how much money you were making at the very beginning in order to feel comfortable to kind of actually like kind of hit the road. Cause I remember I got one client that was paying me a thousand dollars a month and I was like, that's it. Let's go. Like, that's all I need. And now I'm like, I was such an idiot. Like clearly that's not going <laughs> to cut it. Um, but at the time I was like, I was lifeguarding and I would lifeguard from like 4am to noon and then right afterwards, I would like work on like my business or whatever. And I got one client mm -hmm. and I was like, boom, let's go. And that was it. Do you remember what your like, uh, like your, your, your freedom wings, like what was the amount that came that you felt comfortable to leave? I know I equaled, I think the month before I left traveling, I had matched or exceeded my full-time uh, job income, which I mean, I was landscaping. So that was, I think a like $15 an hour job. So not mm -hmm. making a ton of money. And so I think probably it was around like $2,500 a month. And that's probably Canadian. So let's say like between $2,000 and $2,500 US um, was where I was at. And I feel like those first eight months, I think there was some months that was probably like maybe 3,000. I don't know that I would have ever hit 3,500 and some that were like 1,500. And so I feel like there was a bit of swing there. And yeah, I really, my my like measure of success at that point was if I can travel for free, if I can break even and spend a year traveling yeah. and not be any worse off, then I was happy with that. And then it was when I lost those couple of clients, I was like, Oh, th that's not good enough. Cause like, yeah, you lose, you lose a few clients and you're down to like $500 a month or, or yeah, like you said, a thousand dollars a month. And yeah, especially that full first full year was in Europe. Like, yeah, that's just not going to work. Yeah. It's like in the very beginning, you don't really think about the fact that like clients are going to leave. And it's almost like mm -hmm. the word churn doesn't exist in your vocabulary yet. And like, you don't think about the fact that like, you are not just doing marketing to grow and make more money. You're doing marketing and acquiring new clients so that when previous clients leave for whatever reason, doesn't mean that you did a bad job, but you know, clients move on, maybe, um, you know, whatever they're paying you to do is not paying off. Um, so they leave and you need to be ready for that because if you, and I'm, I'm assuming you had the same experience. If you wait to start marketing, when you need the clients, you're going to get those clients in like six months, you know, not right away. Yeah. I think that's like the classic freelancer conundrum is that sometimes you're like too, too busy, either doing the work or just like enjoying the current situation that you're in, that mm -hmm. you're not actually doing any of the extra work to, to get future clients. And then, yeah, you run into a, a tight spot and then you start doing that. And then there's a big lag a lot of times before that pays off. So to me, you've always been, like I said, we've known each other for several years. We were in a mastermind together and I've always looked up to you because you, for me, are like the quintessential digital nomad. Like I've always been like, ah, Jeremy's like the dude, you know what I mean? Like you've got this agency, you're doing well, like you have tons of clients, you know, you have, uh, and I think that you have this like happy medium of like, 
you don't have a huge company that's all the stress, but your company is this like perfect sweet spot size where you know everybody, but you don't have to do all the work. But how do you balance like, this is a two-part question. Uh, don't judge me. I know asking two questions is not what you're supposed to do on podcasts, but how do you balance work and travel now to a point where it's, you know, you're still having fun, but you're also still doing work. And then also, um, what do you do as a digital nomad when you're not working? Cause that's something I always struggle with. I'm like, okay, great. We're doing this thing, but like, I just end up working all the time. So sometimes I'm like, why did I even go to this place? So how do you find that balance? And what are the things that you like to do when you're not working? Yeah. So I've definitely felt that, uh, I was in Brazil in, I want to say 2018 or maybe it was fall 2017 for two months. I think it was fall 2017. And, uh, it was the last two months before Christmas, November, December. And I was in doing another house sit, and I pretty much stayed in the house and worked the entire time. And, and definitely like felt that was the only time I think I've like really felt burnout, but it kind of like kind of rode that burnout wave a little bit. And where I'd like get up to the, the point where I was just like, clearly I was having, you know, negative, nothing major, but negative health effects and was just not sleeping well. And was just got up at like probably five 30 in the morning or six and was like right to work and then working till late. And it's funny, like looking back now, there is some like fondness to the memories, but it's also like, I never want to do that again. And that was the point where I probably had maybe two contractors at that point, but the quality control was shoddy and I was too busy to like do anything about it. I kind of felt. And so it was like getting to that next year where I was like, okay, well, for one, I think I need to bring on more people to do some of the stuff that I'm having a hard time letting go of. But then with that, I also need to get more focused on systems. And it was kind of over that next year where uh, I actually was still another six months from there where I joined a, a system specific mastermind and really started getting the wheels turning on getting everything actually organized where people knew what the, the quality expectations were. They knew what they were supposed to do. They knew who they were supposed to get in touch with if you know X happened or Y happened or whatever and started getting a little bit clear about how all the pieces fit together. And so that was uh, then in, in 2018 that I started that till mid 2019 was when I, I finished that systems mastermind. And then it feels like now early this year where, so Q1, Q2, 2020, where somehow everything finally came together where it was like, oh, I'm getting so few emails anymore. Like I'm not getting emails from clients. The clients are talking to the right people on my team. I have those people in place and my team all knows what they're doing that they don't need to ask me about every little thing. And so this year, 2020, since like Q2 uh, has been, I, I look back at my like time logs now, my time tracking, and it's like very much content creation and all this more fun stuff, which I, it, it kind of came as a shock to me. It, it felt like a, a switch flipped, but it was like really two years in the making where everything was kind of getting better and better and better. And, and to the point where I was like, okay, finally, this is what I was creating all these systems for. It took a long time to kind of come to fruition, but now like everybody knows what they're doing. Um, they, they know that where I am, how to get in touch with me, what they should get in touch with me for and when to go to someone else. And now it's like, okay, I actually have that space to breathe and have more of that balance. Cause there was definitely like a year and a half, two years where it was kind of like you were saying, just not seeing a lot of stuff and just always working and always kind of worrying as well that things weren't being done properly, that it, like going to bed every night and like worrying about the next morning, waking up and having an angry email from a client that something was done wrong. And uh, yeah, it, it's so funny how, how long that took kind of like we were talking about before where you like do the work and there's a delay before it, it pays off. And so like, yeah, a lot of that foundation was laid 
two years ago. And then finally this year, it was kind of like, oh, a few tweaks were made and everything kind of clicked into place. And, uh, and so now that, that, that balance is a lot easier to achieve. Um, so to as the, the second- world was coming apart from COVID, you were like, oh, this is sweet. <laughs> Life is good. Everything's working. Nice. Yeah. And I mean, like we did lose a few clients through COVID and had a, a couple put their shows on hold and, and things like that. So um, we were like pretty, pretty stable throughout it. But um, yeah, that, that was, I mean, one of the nice things about having that freedom then was actually like as COVID was starting, I had been able to create this course uh, that I'm now about to launch for the second time. It's called Podcast Marketing Academy. And so had 18 people sign up for that. So that was a nice extra chunk of income that provided a lot of security. But like a year ago, I, I've been thinking about kind of like I said at the start, creating digital products for four years and had never had either the experience or then the time later uh, when the, the business was actually running. And I felt like I knew enough to teach people. I just had no time to put into anything that wasn't just like doing the client work. And so that was actually one of the payoffs where it's like, okay, now I have all this time and I can actually do this thing that I've been wanting to do for four years. Like, what do you do when you're like traveling and like not working? Like, what is your thing? Like, for example, I love going to breweries and stuff like that, but um, I do get the question sometimes of like, so like, what do you do when you're there? You know? Yeah. Yeah. I feel like uh, my girlfriend and I are very much in that same boat and this has actually shifted over the years. Like I used to, when I was less busy, I, I still love photography, like I mentioned. So I just go, I love walking and I love photography. Mm-hmm. So I'll just go like for long walks, you know, around the city and, and take photos and whatever. Um, and that's, that to me is like a, one of the ways that I still, I don't do it much anymore, but it feels like that's how I really experience travel a lot of times. Cause you like are looking in a different way when you're trying to make interesting photos uh, rather than just walking around on the street and, or like trying to get somewhere. And so, yeah, I'm not a huge attraction sightseeing person. I, I do. I always wish I do more of that. And I think there's some guilt sometimes about like going somewhere and then not seeing any of the things that you're supposed to see. Right. Um, but I know for us, uh, my girlfriend, Kelly, she's a big, I wouldn't call her a foodie, but like food is a big part of travel for her. And so we do, you know, go to a lot of interesting restaurants. Um, coffee is also, we like love probably like the, the best answer to your question is like going to coffee shops, which is like basically, you know, to my, uh, the, the level that my palate is uh, developed when it comes to coffee, it tastes pretty much the same anywhere, but it's still <laughs> like, I like the vibe of coffee shops. Right. And so it is cool to see like different places. They're often like interesting spaces and interesting people and that kind of thing. I think we should brand that because I'm on that as well. Like, I think there's something of like coffee shop tourism or like co-working mm-hmm. tourism where like I will go to certain places specifically because I know there's a cool co-working space there or something like that you know? Yeah. I, I also like, I, I feel like I, I do like new things that are completely different from what I've known before, but part of travel for me and some of almost the most like, I don't know if I would say rewarding, but like interesting mentally mindset wise or intellectually are like the things that exist everywhere, but are different somewhere else. Like seeing, I, I have, I don't know what, what this is about, but I love going in malls in different countries. Mm. Like I never buy anything, but I just like, there's some weird malls out there. And like going to malls in Asia, they're still like normal kind of shopping malls, but they feel like super exotic, even though like a lot of the same stores are even in there. I remember going to one actually in, uh, I think it was Romania or was it Bulgaria? It was either, it was on the trip that I went to Romania and Bulgaria. I think it was in Bucharest. And I remember going to see uh, whatever new Star Wars movie was out at the time, like a year and a half ago and going that mall, like 
I thought it was so amazing. And I don't know what about it, but I was just like, this is a wacky mall. And it was like so confusing. It was so easy to get lost in. There's a roller coaster that, but it wasn't like a big enough mall that there should be a roller coaster. And I was <laughs> that's, like, that's so this... Eastern European. A, there's a roller coaster in the mall, but also there's not, there shouldn't have been one there. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. So I feel like that kind of stuff sometimes, like the things that are familiar to you, but are done differently elsewhere. I always love mm. those. Yeah. And then uh, here in Portugal right now, then like this is one of the examples where they're, this hasn't happened very often, but like I've always wanted to surf more than I ever have. Like I, I did it for the first time a few years ago, just took like one lesson in Morocco and was kind of like, oh, I, I see why, like I sucked at it, like everyone does the first time, but I was like, I see why people would get hooked on this. And mm -hmm. so I always wanted to do more of it. And so then when I was in Lima, Peru, uh, about a year and a half ago, then I did it like maybe four or five times over the two months that I was there and then coming to Portugal uh, and knowing that Portugal's uh, really well known for surfing. Uh, I've been going pretty much once or twice a week since being here. And so it's, it's kind of one of those things where it's like, sometimes there's something that you love to do that you can only do in certain places. So now I'm kind of getting more in the mindset of like, well, let's go to those places in particular and then also take advantage of it while you're there, which I have not always done a good job of in the past. Yeah. I think that, um, I'm starting to get to that point too, where I'm like, I want to go to certain places because of what I can do in those places and almost making mm -hmm. it like, um, I don't really know what I want to call it yet, but it's like, for example, I found that there's this, um, supposedly really good sailing Academy in Varna where, um, Sarah and I, my, my fiance and I go, um, as a home base. And I was like, you know what? I want to come here one summer and I want like my goal to be to like learn to sail. Cause I've yeah. grown up around sailing. Um, but I'm not at the point where I can say like, yeah, I know how to sail. Do you know what I mean? Like I like wouldn't feel comfortable getting on a boat by myself. And so I'd love to go and like, Hey, I'm working and I'm like running my business, but the like other half of my focus is on like, you know, like learning how to sail. And I'm sure there's a, I would also love to do that with like snowboarding. Right. So there's like lots mm -hmm. of these like things that you can almost start traveling for. What does that location allow you to learn or experience that kind of stuff? Yeah. And I think the challenge sometimes with those is at least when you're starting out in my previous mentality was like things like snowboarding. Like I used to snowboard a ton in Canada and it's just expensive if you have to rent every time. And so, I mean, here I'm renting a surfboard every time we get a deal through the co-working space. Um, so it's, I mean, it's still, I'm sure by the end of the three months that we're here, like it'll add up to quite a bit, but it's definitely worth it to me. Um, right. if I was here, I don't know, even like six months, maybe I would look at buying gear, uh, and then trying to like sell it again later. And so the same thing with snowboarding, I think those types of things get easier, the longer you stay in the place. And also if you just have that kind of disposable income to say like, okay, well, I know I'm only here, maybe it is a month. So I'm just going to pay that extra amount because I, I came here to do this and I'm not going to like not do it now yeah. just because it costs, you know, a little bit more or maybe a lot more than it would if I owned the gear. Well, I think, you know, like your priorities kind of shift as your business matures a little bit. Like in the beginning, mm -hmm. you don't have like the capacity to do that. You know what I mean? Like you're oh, yeah. <laughs> like everything that you're thinking and doing is going into the business and like, you almost like, I feel guilty even today, like any time that I'm like, should be working or something like that. Or I know I could be working, but I'm doing something else. There's still a little bit of guilt with that. But as your business matures and kind of becomes more stable, not only do you get the uh, financial freedom to be able to have a little bit more, like you said, like a disposable income that you can put towards that, but also like mental freedom to go and do that. Um, 
and you start like i feel like you develop these like interesting like little quirks like um my friend dan andrews from tropical nba like he travels with mm. a big monitor that you know what i mean it's like these yeah. things that you kind of develop as like when yeah. you you know what i mean like i like i'm and he has said like he would have never done that in the past or he would have probably like made fun yeah. of people that did it but you almost uh -huh. like you know as you grow so yeah and i mean like we we used to travel strictly with uh backpacks like backpacking backpacks and there in the first year or two i was never like do diehard dogmatic about it but the the whole carry-on travel like i did that the first trip and then the second trip i was like well i'm bringing like this microphone that i'm using here which is is big enough that it if you're only traveling carry-on it takes up a good amount of space and so like that started to grow so then i was like okay well i'll bring the i, I won't take my big backpack as a carry-on and i'll check that one and then bring a smaller backpack and then last summer we ended up getting like actual big luggage suitcases and we had uh that had actually come out of meeting with some friends uh in colombia at well i didn't actually go to a conference but uh kelly went to uh seven and seven mm -hmm. which is a nomad conference and so she met them there and then we, they, we both stayed long after the conference for another month. And they, they had just huge suitcases, but they had been traveling like years and they were like, I mean, we want to be comfortable. Like we both were running our businesses and like, we're here for a while. So I don't care if, you know, once every few months we have to hold these huge suitcases or, or around the city or the airports. And we were also like, well, actually, yeah, like in the past, it was a lot of taking trains and all these different yeah. things. Like you're moving more you have often, to, you know, and yeah, now we're like, well, we, we take a flight or a train or whatever, and then we get an Uber to our apartment. It's not like we're lugging these things like around the city. Yeah. And we're like, well, there, then there's no reason. And, and part of that was, I think there's like a pride in being like a backpacker versus like people rolling their like wheeled luggage across cobblestones, you know, can always laugh at those people. And now <laughs> I'm just kind of like, oh, I don't care. Like, whatever, I'll do that. Like one or two days, you know, every few months. And uh, then I have all these things that actually like make me more productive or happier or have like hobbies or things like that. So I feel like there's definitely a, a progression that can happen there, depending on what your like priorities are when it comes to travel and work and, and your home life kind of. Yeah. In our relationship, I was like the diehard, like no wheels, like, and I, I specifically know why I had an experience lugging a suitcase across cobble cobblestone streets. And I knew I looked like an idiot because yeah. I felt like an idiot. And I was like, no wheels. Like that was the rule. And then like, now, like, I think our kind of our travel style has evolved to the point where we're not changing locations every week or like every two weeks. It's far more like, hey, we're going to come here. We're going to get a home base for a couple of months. And then from there, you know, we might take small trips. So that has like, you know, now I'm thinking about like, I am likely going to get a suitcase that's like bigger, mm -hmm. but then still have like the ability to when I do take like a three day trip to x place that's close by still just bring a backpack because it does make more sense when you are just kind of like you know popping over to one place you just go carry on um but you know kind of heading towards wrapping up i do want to talk a little bit about how you made that shift from working as essentially you know a freelancer yourself to actually hiring people and you know what did it take in terms of i think the biggest thing I think is mindset that needs to, mm -hmm. to change there when you make that transition. But what do you feel like was the biggest, you know, thing that you needed to do or change in order to start hiring people and like running a business as opposed to, you know, freelancing? Yeah. I mean, for me, it was definitely like, yeah, mindset is a big thing. And I think 
for me, I was also desperate to hire the first person because like mm. that was probably right before uh, I was in Brazil, like I talked about. And so things were busy, not quite as busy as they got in Brazil, but like I could, it was so clear that I could not do everything on my own anymore. And that also I, I needed to work more. I needed more clients to actually make this profitable and sustainable. And so and I was like, okay, well, I guess I, I need to hire people at some point. What do I like the least? And like, let's have someone else do that. And so I think at the start, that was, I actually, the first person I did hire as a contractor was an audio editor because I felt I had the most expertise in that area. So I could best train someone or, and, and I had a network of people who, who could do that. And so I brought someone on, but I was definitely like not a good boss when it comes to like communicating how things need to be done or expectations. And it was a friend as well. So I, I didn't feel comfortable like giving critical feedback um, or constructive feedback. And so that like really didn't work out that well uh, in the long run. And uh, he worked with me for a few months and then I actually lost a client. And so it was kind of like both feeling the, the financial pinch and was also like, okay, well, I have a bit more time, so I'm just going to take that show back. And the next person I hired was then to do show notes um, for the podcast that we were doing. Because that was the thing that like, I didn't mind editing the shows, but the show notes was always like, felt like a drag to me. So I was like, okay, well, let's get someone doing that. And then from there, I added one editor and I think that second one was someone who was like, again, I knew, but we weren't like friends. So I was like, okay, I know this person's good. And you know, the, I, I was feeling much more confident in my ability to communicate with people. And so I think there were definitely, there are, are certainly now, I think with, with editing and show notes, I never felt too precious about it. Like some people feel like only I can do it like, you know, to this level of quality. And, you know, I, I think I still do feel that way around both those things because um, I feel like I am a, a good writer and also a good editor and nobody ever cares as much as you when it's your clients. And so I right. think probably anyone on my team like could do as good a job as I, but it's, you, you just can't expect that, especially with contractors. And they probably have no idea that they would even be, you know, not editing to the, the full extent of their capabilities. And to be honest, like I made the realization at some point that I was like, if I was working for someone else, I wouldn't be editing to the level that I do. Like, it's insane. The client has no idea. Like, it can be a not like, I don't need to like agonize over every single edit through the whole thing. The client's not going to notice. The listeners aren't going to notice. So it's putting in all this extra effort for like <laughs> tiny, tiny returns, basically. Yeah. Gary V has this thing I heard him say once that um, I was like, oh, that actually is like an interesting way of looking at it that he said he doesn't expect any of his employees to be like A players because he's the only A player in his business because it's his business. And his whole thing is like that the only A player in the team is always like only the owner because like no one else is going to care about your business as much as you do, you know? Mm -hmm. And I was like, I was like, that's an interesting way to look at it. And he was like, you know, all A players have their own businesses kind of thing. So. Yeah. And I think you can like, I think different people would have different ways of like grading the people on their team. Um, but I, I think it is like, yeah, nobody's ever going to go that above and beyond. Nobody's going to like, mm -hmm. it's, it's hard to compel anyone else to like get up in the middle of the night if a client called or something like that. Right, or, yeah. or like, who's going to be stressing out enough that if they wake up at three in the morning, they're going to check their email to be like, oh, I wonder if anybody's like, especially when you're in a different time zone, like their show didn't publish as scheduled or like whatever that might be. And like, nobody's going to do that. And it's stupid to do that yourself. And I think that like uh, one of the things that I learned around that was kind of like setting boundaries with clients. Um, and also like both 
for my team's sake and also for my own sake. And I think actually like having the team, and I've seen this happen with uh, another a mutual friend of ours, Haley, um, who she's also a client of mine. And when she hired the first person on her team, she became a much better client to me in terms yeah. of like getting stuff, <laughs> getting all the materials to me on time. And so I think that that same thing happened for me where like, as soon as I had a team, I was like, oh, I can't like let clients delay on their submission deadlines and stuff anymore. Or we can't be making all these tweaks because it's just like, now I'm having to ask someone else to work on the weekend and I'll work on the weekend, like no problem, but I'm not going to ask them to do it if they had plans. Um, and so I think that that was a really interesting thing about how actually bringing on a team help the business get better in a different way other than just taking work off my plate. Like I actually have to get more structured and disciplined with, with clients and like setting boundaries and, and all these procedures, uh, putting those in place. Yeah. I think it's like, I know that working with clients is one of the things that like, you know, you, you'll hear it often that like working with clients is like, instead of having one boss, you have, you have several bosses, yeah. which is definitely true. But I almost, I, I think it's a good way for you to like almost cut your, like, like learn business, you learn mm -hmm. negotiation, you learn how to like raise your prices, you learn all these different things. And it's definitely true that like, you can tell people who have worked with clients before and in the way they interact with you, like, I'm not as good at like, for example, my editor, Abby, I feel bad for her because I sometimes know I send her things like, like way too late before she gets them. And yeah. I feel so bad about it that I'm like, I'm so sorry, you know, like, cause I know what it's like to get things like last minute. I I would say to that point, before, before we wrap up, I would say that that is actually like, if you ever hire someone, like that is actually a great, a, a growth opportunity for you as a business owner dealing with clients, because I pay attention now, like when I have hired a contractor or someone to do some project for me, whether they're not like part of the core team or something else, I like notice like when I make a request, what, what is my expectation of it? If I send them something last mm -hmm. minute, am I actually going to get mad if they come back and tell me like, Hey, I can't get to this till Monday. Of course not. Yeah, and yet right. I think all my clients, if I delay for five minutes are going to be angry at me and, and leave. And so I think like noticing that if you start hiring other people and just observing how you behave as a client, unless you're like a really shitty client, <laughs> then, <laughs> then you're going to be like, Oh, people don't have these expectations of me. And like, I don't have it of anyone I'm hiring. And so there's a bit more like leeway there in terms of like being able to dictate how the relationship works. And I know for me, when I, when the light bulb went off for me, I was like, oh, I not only do I have the ability to kind of be in the driver's seat a bit more with my clients, but I think they actually expect that from me. Like if somebody's mm -hmm. hiring you, probably unless you're like a $10 an hour, you know, cheap labor, they're expecting right. you to be the expert and to take the lead and make it easy for them so they don't have to think about everything. Yeah, that's, that's such a good point. And I think it's specifically the, the way you price yourself says a lot. And, I, and I've talked with a lot of people who um, offer services is like, listen, like if you're charging $10, $15 an hour, A, it's not feasible because you're clearly not working in all of the expenses that it takes to run a business. But also like your clients will treat you like you're worth $15 an mm -hmm. hour. And so like you need to charge more in order to like, you'll see your, the way that your clients, like the way that they listen to what you suggest you do, like they'll put more value on it. Even if it's the same advice you would have given when you were charging $15 an hour. So, um, I think that's definitely right. But Jeremy, I love talking, uh, together all the time. It's always, uh, a lot of fun, but I want to be respectful of your time. I don't want to keep you from surfing. So let people know um, you have a new podcast out called Build a Better Wellness Biz. 
uh, and obviously Counterweight Creative, but where can people find out uh, more about that? And also you did mention a course. Uh, where can people check that out if they're interested in kind of learning about editing? Yeah, so uh, you can go to counterweightcreative.co slash that remote show. And I'll have all the links there on a page uh, specifically for people who listen to this show. And yeah, like you mentioned, I have a podcast and that is specifically geared at health and wellness professionals, but really it's like online marketing for that community. And then I have a couple different uh, product offerings there when it comes to um, podcast marketing, as well as just growing your audience, no matter what you do. I have a, a course all about podcast guesting. So like, like I'm doing now, guesting on another show, getting in front of new people, which uh, in my experience is the absolute best way to get in front of new people and, and grow your audience. So uh, I have a free course on there as well as a paid course. And then I have the big uh, podcast marketing academy as well. So all of that stuff uh, is at counterweightcreative.co slash that remote show. Cool, man. Well, thanks so much. And uh, maybe next time uh, we can meet up in Portugal or something, we'll, we'll do some surfing together. And that sounds fantastic. <laughs>